Today we're asking what advertising can and should do, and proposing that the world will end not with a bang, but with a BOGO deal on fabric softener. That is Telekinetic. Hello again. I am Mitch. You are here. And Veronica Ahern is in Seattle, where she just got out of the advertising game a few weeks ago. But like Al Pacino in Godfather 3, we're pulling her back in. Of course, Pacino survived his crippling callback, so I'm sure Veronica will too. Ad tech, much maligned as it may be lately, is a shining example of what this podcast is all about. Because, as we'll soon learn, advertisers have effectively created time travel, or at least the part of time travel that lets you change the course of events before they occur. And we don't think much of it because the technology was built to sell us potato chips, but shit, man, a time machine's still a time machine. Now, without further ado, let's bring on Veronica to teach us all about my second least favorite cookies in the world, next to Vienna Fingers, of course. Hit it, Ben. I got Hey, Hello. Veronica, thanks again for coming on. And today we're going to be talking about advertising, which I think is everyone's new most hated thing. <laughs> <laughs> maybe, maybe not. I don't know. But it's certainly like, I feel like it's certainly something that everyone has an opinion about now and they didn't used to as of at least, you know, five or six or seven years ago. Yeah, definitely. Happy to be here. So I guess I'll kind of start with the general history of advertising and how for decades, centuries, hmm, let's go decades. <laughs> uh, you know, for decades, it was really about, it really was about transporting a message to wherever the eyeballs were. Right. And so much of that was about manipulating the, you know, painting or posting something on the built environment, whether that was uh, side of a of a building, or I mean, in the case of billboard ads, kind of a perfect example where advertisers had to create a built environment out of thin air, like take up space in the sky <laughs> to be where the eyeballs were. So it was all this, you know, chasing where people would be in order to get your message across. And miraculously, which is maybe a, not the right word to use, but miraculously, in the past, you know, half decade or decade the public kind of just volunteered to put all of that real estate in our pockets, <laughs> which is a kind of a weird, a weird decision that we made, but we did. And so I guess, I guess the first thing to talk about is kind of that progression and that, you know, the state that we're in where so much of the, this real estate sits in literally one, one place right now. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head where advertising has been around us for forever. Um, it's, you know, as soon as there was products to be sold and, and word of mouth no longer was good enough to, to get that word out there on the products it you know, went into just, yeah, as we walked down the street, drove on the freeway, you see these ads, but now it's, you know, the advertising platforms itself have advanced and now they sit on our phones where we're 
constantly interacting with these advertisements, sometimes whether we know it or not. Yeah, that's uh, that's going to play into uh, some of the later conversation, I think. Right. But even the I mean, you know, that that's maybe there's some banality there and people get it and it's like, oh, yeah, OK, yeah, the ads are on our phone now. Sure. But, uh, you know, I think a lot of folks outside your industry don't even get to what degree the ads are just they're not even just on the phone. They're only on a couple places on the Internet. Right. Like Facebook and Google and Amazon. Like what I, that am I wrong that that's like the lion's share of mobile ad spending is there? Yeah, I mean, definitely, because you think of where are people spending the time when they're on their phone, it's on those different types of sites. But then you also have to think of advertising has evolved beyond just a banner ad where people are acknowledging that, oh, yep, I'm getting an advertising towards me. It's becoming more a part of the content itself. So, um, but you think, yeah, where are you spending the time on your phone? That's where the most money is being spent. And these different companies are researching all that different behavior to say, okay, how am I most effectively going to spend my money and advertisers' money to to continue to to fill their pockets? Yeah, that actually now I think about it is like a great way to to tell the story, right? Is like it went from trying to occupy the space to trying to occupy the the time and and so much of the competition mm-hmm. for the for inventory is the time that people are spending somewhere, not so much where they are. Cause you, you kind of, sadly, we know where they are and it's like one of three places. <laughs> Which is really weird. <laughs> exactly. When you, you take that concept and, you know, go back to what you're saying about billboards, like before that was a, a great way to capture time from people. Like they were sitting in traffic and all they were doing was scanning and looking yeah. outside. So billboard was the perfect way. Now you think of that when you're in a car, you're in traffic, hopefully not the driver, but as a passenger, you know, you're sitting there staring at your phone instead. So you're not interacting with the space around you as much. So those billboards go unnoticed. So they had to take those billboards and put them uh, where your, your time was being focused, which is in your phone. And I will say that if there's anything I'm happy about having traveled the country a lot, it's that billboard space is so cheap that really crazy people are spending very small amounts of money to put their really crazy ideas up there. <laughs> I've seen it. Oh, billboards can be super entertaining. <laughs> yeah. It has definitely moved on from uh promotional material to entertainment in a lot of places. Uh, I, I guess definitely. I won't, I won't name any in particular, but um, you know who you are out there or you don't, which is the funnier part. Um, well, you know, and even the, like the the metrics for, for performance, right, have moved on from a transportation to a manipulation kind of standpoint. Like the one I always thought was hilarious when I worked in advertising was, well, not that this was a thing when I worked there, but just knowing that it used to be that circulation was kind of this key performance indicator or the, or this performance metric for ROI, which literally just consisted of like the the number is how many versions of this ad or how many uh, copies of this ad were transported to a final destination. And if that's the Ritz Carlton and you sent 200 copies of the New York times there, that's your number. It was like 200. That's your, that's your performance number. It's mm-hmm. like, I, no one could have looked at those. They could have gone straight in the trash. And yet that was the number people went on, which was literally just like a number that represented the transportation of your ad. Whereas now it really is like, manipulative to the point of, and I don't even say that in a bad way, just in the grand scheme of this podcast, that to the point that the performance is really like, did my ad achieve the effect that I desired from it? That is my ROI, right? 
Exactly. It's not even like, yeah, did my ad reach a person? Um, it's did my ad reach that exact person that I was trying to reach at that exact moment in time where they were going to be most receptive to my ad. And then even, uh, I know our mutual friend I know has worked in a space where it even came down to like, did my ad make this person spend more money on potato chips than they would have spent had they not seen this Mm -hmm. ad? (laughs) Oh, exactly. Like the data goes well beyond just, yeah, are you you likely to be a potato chip buyer? But it's like, how much have you spent on potato chips over the last five years of your life? And after seeing this ad and that, you know, three months after, did you increase that average spend? Like it is insane the amount of data that these these companies have to make these decisions. <laughs> I mean, do you think that advertising is like the most well-funded study of human psychology in history, <laughs> for better or worse? It's, yeah, I mean, it, it's funny because I, I had never thought of it that way. But like seeing it, like, yeah, I, I totally agree that it's, it wasn't the intention, I think, uh, as all this money started to be poured into digital advertising, but it's been the outcome. And it's been a, a crazy study that is just now starting. Like people are just realizing that they're a part of this study. Yeah. Um, but yeah, billions of dollars have been thrown into this. And yeah, it's been very focused on on advertising. But if you boil it out to really what these companies have been able to do, it's actually quite interesting. And I think a lot of people will hear this and be like, oh, that's terrifying, which is fair. But the, the reason I think it's terrifying and scary is because it's so unknown. Yeah. Like this, the knowledge of this happening has been so behind the scenes and it's finally coming to the forefront. And until the average consumer can learn more about this and, and how it's being done, it is scary. But when you figure out more about how it all works, it's actually really interesting. Yeah, I'm trying to think of like the the eloquent way to say this, but it's like, we always thought fear of the unknown was like the big fear, but then there's like fear that something else knows you better than you is somehow <laughs> scarier. And that, I don't, I don't remember whether it was Harvard or Stanford, but I feel like it was one of those um, university studies on the Facebook algorithms, knowledge of you as a person, like your character. And basically it, it vetted, I think it took nothing more than Facebook likes, like the things you like on Facebook and gauge that, as to whether you were like your political stance and whether you're like an open person or, or uh, introverted person and this, that, the other thing, easily angered. And then they asked the same questions of close friends and family of your own. And the algorithm was apparent somehow, I don't know how, but somehow better at judging your character than your friends and family. Yeah. Like that. It's crazy, but it like being in the industry, like I, that totally makes sense to me. It's, because they're taking purely data and analyzing that as compared to, you know, like if I was to go out and explain who I am as a person or even, you know, my husband, my best friend, my parents, like they all are seeing different versions of myself or like what version I'm feeling like being that day. But if you take data of how you're interacting with things and, and pull the the personal aspects out of it, like, yeah, you can really learn a lot about who you are as a person. And then therefore how you are as a consumer. Yeah. Well, and, that, and, and I think also to your point, like even, even people, you know, well, there's still an element of going on a stage and performing for them a bit. Whereas maybe that, that private, especially in, in a mobile 
device. Like it's so private and it's just your little screen and you're there and maybe it just becomes kind of Pavlovian that like you get so used to just scrolling through, through stuff that you're just like, you don't voluntarily like a thing or react to a thing, but it's just, that's just your personality doing it. And maybe that, mm-hmm. that is that pure, <laughs> that pure essence of your character shining through that you, you just really love Lady Gaga and you just didn't want to tell anyone else that you do. <laughs> Yeah, and like, yeah, you forget that there's actually people behind all that content that you're yeah, seeing yeah. <laughs> as well, which it, not to say that someone's looking at there being like, oh, Veronica is going through and yeah, scrolling all this Lady Gaga content. Like, it's not that personal, but still like all that that information is, is being collected and, and used. Yeah, I mean, I'm, it has so much potential and obviously it's been used. Well, you said it well. It's like, it's interesting and terrifying. And the thing to remember is that interesting does, doesn't have an emotional tie to it. Interesting can mean, oh, nuclear warfare. Interesting. <laughs> um, it doesn't have to be good to be interesting. So like that's, um, which I think was a, an okay Cupid uh, question back in the day. <laughs> now that I think about it. But just the, yeah, like the potential for what can be done with that information when you, like when you know that an agency like Cambridge Analytica was able to be so uh, manipulative without really doing much. I mean, other than the, uh, if I remember correctly, the technically illegal thing they did, which didn't manipulate people, but was just contractually illegal, mm-hmm. you know, just the ability to manipulate people in that sense means, okay, well, if you can do that to that end, then you can do it for any number of reasons that are probably very positive and very useful. Mm-hmm. We just maybe haven't seen those yet. <laughs> exactly. And I think that, like that that's part of the problem with this is that this inherent value exchange that's been going on between consumers and brands it, it's not a new thing but it it came to the forefront people understood that or i guess heard about that value exchange in the negative light of Cambridge Analytica and and how companies were taking advantage of it and so i think it's concept itself has always had this gray cloud over it where I think the more we can educate the average consumer on this value exchange, the better it can be because it, it there's a lot of cool things that can be done with this um, if we protect users and, and educate them so that way we, we protect against this negative use mm. of it and really focus on the, the positive and the, the innovation. Yeah. All right. Yeah, I'm down with that. Well, I have a thought on that later, but, <laughs> but I, one thing I do want to do because I, this is something I I wrote a piece on a a while back and it's just like, I find it to be one of the most fascinating ideas in life right now. And uh, maybe I'm alone, but we'll find out, I guess, when we look at how many listeners are uh, tuning out right about this time in the, in the podcast. (laughs) But since most of these folks are are laymen who are going to be listening, can you just walk us through like the generic idea of a programmatic real-time bidding Mm -hmm. auction? Yeah. So if you think of it, so real-time bidding, RTB, is saying, what am I as an advertiser going to pay for this real estate? It, we'll, we'll just use on this website. So what am I willing to pay for, for that real estate to get my advertising out there? And as the name says, they're making these decisions in real time. So a company is saying, okay, great. I have this product and my I know from all kinds of research that my best customers are ages 24 to 30 in this specific geo and they 
commonly buy these other types of products. And so they're, they already know that information. That's all historical. But what they're doing is they're taking that historical data and applying it in that moment of, okay, great. Who is, who is this person that's now going to in, engage with this content? And how are they going to react to seeing it? So in, in a sense, it's using your past behavior mostly on the the internet, but also maybe directly with their brand, depending on who it is, to predict how you're going to respond to something in the future. And they're doing that in milliseconds. Yeah. Like that's, that's the thing that I think is especially maybe, I don't, I don't want to stereotype. Maybe it's not just that it's the older generation, but just for a lot of folks who, who think that the stuff that shows up in front of them was prefabricated, you know, before they got there. What you're saying is that the reality is, hypothetically, the ad on (laughs) website.com is basically blank, that Mm -hmm. you go to it, it is blank. And before you acknowledge that it's blank, it becomes something else that is meant for you based on what they've learned about you in the moment between you, you visiting it and you acknowledging it with your eyeball. <laughs> exactly. So like, let's take a, a real life example. So New York times, you know, sure. There's still some papers um, in real life being delivered, but back in the day, you know, everyone was accessing New York times content through physically getting a paper delivered to their house. And with that, the advertisements were something that was pre-designed, you know, it has to go out before printing. It's not going to yeah. be specific to that person that's reading the paper. It could be specific to, hey, we know this much about New York Times readers. So they're a more, you know, maybe affluent crowd. And so, you know, here are some Mm. advertisements that work well. That's how it used to happen. Now, most content on New York Times is being digested virtually. So now they're able to say, okay, great. Like, I know that this person, and to be fair, like they're, they're coming in and they may not know that I am Veronica as I log in, I could just be cookie ID one, two, three, four, but still that is a unique identifier on, on me as an anonymous reader of, of New York times. I bet that's like the coolest cookie ID to have. I bet that, <laughs> I bet that costs a lot of money. Like, oh, I'm cookie one, two, three, four. It's like, Damn. exactly. Yeah. You have to pre-order that. It's <laughs> <laughs> um, so like, as I go on to New York times, with that connection of, okay, great. We know this person, they've been here before. They can in real time look through and say, okay, great. This is content that Veronica has interacted with before. This is other data from third-party sources that we may have on her. And again, in an anonymous basis, but saying, okay, great. Like she is really loves Gonzaga basketball that, and then you can inform other details about me to say, great, this advertisement from Nike is going to be most effective for Veronica right now. Like it is in the evening, she's not at work. So she's going to be more likely to interact with something. Great. We're going to show her this Nike ad that's about something cool that that's going on within the sports world. And, and they're doing that again from the moment that I'm clicking onto that site as the page is loading, which is, we all know, like, even in the slowest page load, it is milliseconds <laughs> that it, yeah. it's coming through. And, and all that data is being thrown into what, what advertisement is going to be shown to me as an individual. And, and not even to downplay like the auction part of it, right? Because mm-hmm. it, the auction really is, it's an auction in the way anyone thinks an auction exists, which is there's a bunch of people out there who are bidding on this, this moment in time. Yeah. That, yeah. 
I didn't even yeah bring that up where it's yeah I maybe shown the Nike ad but Adidas or ESPN.com or other companies that are also see me as a very valuable um, consumer are also trying to bid for that same user so they're putting a, a value on me um, seeing their ad. Yeah, and that and again that's like you know imagine like an eBay auction happening but it happens the the auction happens and finishes before you even get to see the page it's like what what like how how is this happening yeah exactly all of that that would have been in the olden days would have occurred by like an agency bringing a brand an opportunity from new york times and, and probably walking into the office and saying like hey you know they've got this this spot on page three do we want to do it what are we going to do okay literally send them the creative you know in a in mail, I don't know. <laughs> and, and all this other stuff we're, we're going a ways back now at this point, but all of that movement that had to happen by people now is just occurring through, you know, algorithms and, and bots that are, that are obviously powered by people. So, you know, most of it is only intelligent to the standpoint that it's been programmed and still mm-hmm. programmatic, but that all of that is happening. That whole universe is happening in, in those milliseconds before you even acknowledge that the thing you expected to happen didn't happen. And that's, that's what's so interesting to me. Uh, and also why I find it so funny and so interesting that, that so much of this money has been from society has been poured into advertising as like a psychological study because the time that it takes a human to acknowledge their reality, as far as I know, has not really changed that much in the hundreds of thousands of years that we've existed. Like that's our, that's our like human scale is, you know, something happens and then, like eh, maybe uh, six uh, milliseconds or whatever, like I acknowledge that it happened, right? But mm-hmm. we can, ad- like we have been advancing and will continue to advance technologies so that that window of time before it's perceivable can be expanded to the point where a whole universe of activity can happen in there. <laughs> like the advertising world could live a, a million lifetimes in the moment before I actually get to see a fucking ad that shows up. <laughs> I'm like, what does that mean for me? I'm scared. Yeah. And like, that's why I say I I get why this is a like terrifying concept to people because yeah, like all these things are happening before you even have time to think about it or to, yeah, like it's just the way it looks to, you know, as I go onto a site as this just all happens, (laughs) like it just is there. And you think like this whole concept of targeted advertising is nothing new. It's been happening since the the first advertisements and you think of tv advertising for example there's mm-hmm. always been day parts of different types of people watch right. shows during the day you know from noon to two then is the audience that's watching it from eight to ten at night and right. so the advertisements vary so it's taking those same concepts and just that they're getting smarter and smarter and learning more and more about us as humans oh that sounds promising <laughs> <laughs> And it, yeah, like it's, and you take it away too from just advertising. Like, let's think Amazon.com. This technology and the this data consumption is being used directly with websites as well as through advertising on various content. If you expand this out to wherever there's a screen, wherever there's a surface, wherever there's an experience that based on your characteristics and your background, like you can be experiencing a different world Mm -hmm. than someone else, but neither of you necessarily know it. And that's like, uh, again, a super interesting concept that we've, you know, we saw get borne out in 
like Cambridge Analytica and things of that nature, where you know everyone just assumed like I'm looking at Facebook or I'm looking at whatever whatever I'm looking at, and that's that's the news and that's mm-hmm. this is the information that's out there. And it's like it is for you. It's different <laughs> for someone else, and that and that is like the uh, again. I, it sounds scary, but I think you're, you know, it's, it's right on point just to call it interesting and, and leave it there and then say like, we've got some work to do because it's, it was always that way. Exactly. <laughs> like, that, like it was always that way before advertising. It was, you know, someone sees a, a, a leopard charging them, like people will experience a different reality and then internalize it in their head later on and say, oh, that leopard was about to kill me. And the other one standing next to you would say like, no, no, it, it was like really curious and was coming up and was going to hug us. It's like, neither of you are wrong about mm-hmm. what would have happened or what you experienced. You just are individual entities experiencing the world and through different lenses. And w- yeah, we are really capitalizing on, on that right now <laughs> with advertising and it could be really cool. I, I, I am really excited. I, I guess I should say that because it sounds like I'm, I'm being really, um, really down on, on advertising, but I do think we give it the short shrift for uh, a lot of the wrong reasons to mm-hmm. some of the points that, that you've made, which I guess leads me to uh, my hot take. My hot take is that privacy is the enemy of progress. And I say that specifically around advertising and, and data, privacy data, uh, in general, just because we are, as some, I, I think a lot of people maybe don't know, we're kind of in this limbo in the U.S. where uh, Western countries, countries in the EU, have really started to be what I guess what they would call consumer centric um, and consumer protective about data, and really doing what they think is helping the consumer to have more control personally over how they share their data. Whereas in the Far East, especially in China, as you, as you could probably speak to, it's gotten a lot more, what would be the word, like socialized, but more, more acknowledging as the culture is, is in that way as well, more acknowledging of the value of the whole uh, rather than the individual. And so there's a, these are these two very different ways of looking at it. And the U.S. is kind of in this this limbo, and I think a lot of times where we are leaning towards that Western take is from kind of a, a gung ho American gut reaction of like, "Oh, you're telling me I have privacy, I have private data. That means it's mine and I own it. That means I shouldn't share it with anyone." But like the the very nature of data is that it has no value unless it is shared. Like it only exists to be connected. And so the idea of trying to protect something that you don't even know what it is or why you're sharing it or, or what you've been doing with it, but you feel like it's yours and it should be tucked away is, in my mind, uh, detrimental to the whole point of using the data in the first place. So that was very long-winded. And uh, <laughs> you, that, that gives you a lot of opportunity to tear it down from whatever uh, point you'd like. Yeah, I mean, I think what I want to s- start first with is this kind of value of data that you touched on at the end there like from the inception of the internet there's been this inherent value exchange that goes on between the content so the website and the user and you think about like again this has been going on for quite some time but it's never really been talked about until recently so cambridge analytica comes out people are realizing that their data is a new form of money you know like that the companies are are using this 
but essentially you're trading your data for free content across the internet. <laughs> so right. let's go back to, we were talking about New York times. So for New York times, it costs them a ton of money to run their business. They have to pay journalists, web design, graphic design, camera crews, et cetera. Yet a majority of people that are consuming their content don't pay for it. Like I go to newyorktimes.com and I can get five free articles a month. And if I go in incognito mode, I can get as many articles a month right. as I want to. You know, yeah. and and the thing is, is the New York Times is not stupid. They know people are finding ways around getting their content for free. So how are they able to pay for it all? It's advertising and the selling of data to be able to bring that content to you. And so it's just this value exchange that needs to be better understood by people. Um, because I remember this was a couple of years ago. I think it was someone in Congress started talking about, oh, well, companies, if this data is so valuable, they should pay each person for their data. So essentially I say, okay, great. I have my data. Great. You want it, New York Times, you can buy it from me. And someone actually did a study on it. And I wish that I could know right now off the top of my head who it was, but they did a study that said, okay, great. If we actually put a dollar value to everyone's data of how, you know, like they'd be able to sell it, it was under a dollar per person. Yeah. If if you're asking me, I'd rather have access to the internet than a dollar. <laughs> like yeah. it's it's one of those things, but it's just understanding then of so we, you know we go back to the topic of privacy. There there does need need to be more transparency about how this value exchange is happening and why it's happening. So I think that's the the big gap as we try to look to regulation and and to your point of privacy being the enemy to progress. I think that is true, but I do think that there needs to be guardrails because this is, it can be creepy. Like there, it can be very personal and, and we do need to protect um, everyone from being taken advantage of. And, and that is a very real possibility. But if we look at that regulation from the point it is now, it's, it's not working. It's not actually helping consumers better understand and take control of the the privacy of their data. I mean, I, I could probably go on, on forever on just like the complaint I have with like GDPR or CCPA, <laughs> like the, these laws are, the heart of it is, is correct. And we need to put guardrails around this industry. And I think if you asked anyone in the industry that is at a legitimate company, they would agree. They want to have these regulations, but we need it to be um, created by people that actually know what's going on and how it works. Because if you don't do that, then these laws are going to be actually worse for, for privacy of, of consumers and it's going to inhibit that progress. Yeah. No, I mean, I, well, oh, well, first off, CCPA, is that the, what is that specifically? Is that the California's law about like? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's CCPA, California Consumer Privacy Act. And so this, I will say, it's still definitely very much in flux, but this was introduced in, I believe it was 2018. And it was essentially saying, hey, as the a consumer, I should know what data companies have on me. So being able to go out and say, okay, Facebook, what data do you have on me? And being able to request that and, and download that, which is good. It, it's good to see kind of what is being tracked because again, it goes into that being better informed. But by requiring companies or by allowing consumers to request that data, it also then requires companies to hold that data. So yeah. 
that that's kind of where I go into the it in some ways it's making it less secure because we're in the past the company may have said okay great yep I know that this is Veronica coming onto my site because I logged in with my email and password so I, I have an account they then may make some informed decisions based off of what I'm doing as I'm browsing through their content. But then as soon as I go off, they're going to delete that information on me and they're going to say, okay, yep, we don't need that anymore. We're not going to store it because it's not relevant. But with things like CCPA, they're now required to store that. So then if I in a month go back and say, hey, wait, what data do you have on me? They're able to report that back. Interesting. Yeah. So I think in a couple episodes, I'm going to have a fine man named Alex Sharonis on to talk about cybersecurity. And that's, I know, like one of the pillars of kind of what he teaches to corporations is data minimization is like, you know, when when in doubt, if you're Mm -hmm. trying to keep your operation as secure as possible, when in doubt, get rid of the damn data, like do not. (laughs) Exactly. Like that's, and this is so, so what you're saying is this is kind of the opposite. And Mm -hmm. especially in the case of, you know, it's one thing I guess to expect of like uh, Chase Bank or someone like that to have some really uh, strong security protocols, but then to say like any brand who has like a Shopify store mm-hmm. or like any local newspaper or anyone like that to actually be storing the data in a safe and secure way is, um, yeah, that's interesting. Is the word and of so, the <laughs> word of that? Yeah, and like. Yeah, like I said, the, the core of what they were trying to accomplish with CCPA, I totally agree with. And being able to understand what where my data is being used is like, yeah, if we think about if the average consumer can understand how my data is being collected, why is it being collected, and then the value that I receive in exchange for that data. Yes, like this becomes a much better run industry and it you know people can feel more comfortable with what's happening but yeah as you have lawmakers that have you know this is a brand new concept to them they're not going to be able to write the law in the correct way it's just impossible like you you know it reminds me of back a few years ago when uh, mark zuckerberg was in front of congress and someone asked him well how does facebook make money the fact that they were trying to question him on the morals of the business and they didn't <laughs> understand how Facebook made money. Like how are yeah. they supposed to get to any resolution there? It's just, it, right, there yeah. needs to be that buy-in from people that have previously worked in the, the industry currently are doing it, that work together with these lawmakers to truly make laws. Um, and it should be federal, not state by state. Please make it federal. <laughs> um <laughs> Just to to be able to create a, a plan that that really works and truly does work to protect the privacy of, of consumers and, and use the the data in a an understandable way. Like I don't think removing the use of data is the right thing because I don't I want the internet for free. I don't want to have random advertising. I I like content that is yeah. relatable to me. You know, yeah. but maybe I'm I'm unique in that. <laughs> well, you touched on a few things that I think are interesting there. And they kind of, to your point, it boils down to like, I'm trying to think of a cool phrase, but basically like a, a useful transparency, or I guess like a, um, like an applicable transparency or something. Cause it's Mm -hmm. not just the transparency of, okay, here's your data, man. You asked for it. Here you go. Mm -hmm. You can go anywhere on the internet and have, have the entity who you're visiting tell you, oh, we protect your PII or we don't take your personally identifiable information or whatever the case may be. And it's like, oh, that's very reassuring. And then you realize that no one gives a shit. Like, I don't <laughs> care. 
as an advertiser, I don't care where your social security number is or your phone number exactly. or where you live. That is not important to me at all. Dude, I know more about where you live from your phone than you know about where you live. Like it does, <laughs> your PII is shit. What I care about and what I'm using to, you know, manipulate the, the environment of the mobile device that you're using so that you buy more potato chips is a, a laundry list of data that you, if you saw it, would probably think is pretty innocuous, you know, or, or maybe not. But the point is, it's a lot more complex and a lot more advanced than just like your phone number, your social, things like that. And again, this is why I go back to the idea of the, the notion that I think we're a little lost, or I should just say we're putting the cart before the horse when we're talking about protecting our data, because we don't, we don't know what it is that we're sharing that we want protected, which is a big problem. <laughs> And then we don't know the repercussions of what happens if we stop sharing it because we've been seeing a lot of the benefits of sharing it. And no one's really been talking to us too much about, you know, the why that's happening or or how that's able to happen. Exactly. Like it just I know I've said it probably far too many times, but going back and educating everyone on that value exchange that's happening. Like I always say that, like, people don't give enough credit to the notion of of imagination as a huge uh, driver of society. And I think people just lack the imagination when they say things like, oh, we should have a policy that, you know, protects consumer data and blah, blah, blah. And they just think, oh, we're going to do that. It's going to work out great. And it's like, uh, put any lawyer in the room. This, this to me is like the, what lawyers do better than most people is lawyers are just good at chaos theory and <laughs> just thinking like, what could possibly happen that would not be the thing you intend to happen here? And the answer is there's a million things that could happen instead of the thing you intended. And that's always the way that, that policies like this end up working. So I look forward to that. (laughs) Uh, Okay. Well, it's been enlightening in, uh, (laughs) in in some frightening ways, but this is, this has been great. Is there anything you want to pitch? I know you kind of, you, you, when we spoke, you just really wanted to make sure, and you touched on it a few times here. We want to make sure consumers kind of understood the, the lay of the land a little better for their own sake. No, yeah, just to double up on that. That that's really like I'm no longer in the the ad tech industry in terms of how I receive my paycheck every week, but it's become just a passion of mine to help people understand like this is actually some really cool stuff that's happening. Don't be scared by it, but take it as an opportunity to learn from it and to understand these things better and you know, it it is good for everyone to see the creepy side of this because then you can help learn how to protect yourself but i think also don't just get bogged down into the creepy side understand of yeah how how is this the cool things that can be done or you know if we take it out of advertising how can nonprofits use this data to increase the their donations things like that where there's a lot of good that can come from data sharing and then also there's a lot of free things that you get in exchange for it that is, in my opinion, much more valuable than the actual dollar value that you could assign to your data. So my ask of people is to just look into this more, research it, and understand you know, how data is being used and the, the value that can come from that. Wonderfully said. And of course, there's always the thing to remember that any innovation usually gets its, uh, its, its land legs from military porn or crime. Those are (laughs) usually the angles. So it's usually horrible stuff that happens when you innovate. And then it it somehow works out often, at least to become, you know, something of value to uh, to society. Nothing wrong with porn. The other two suck. Exactly. (laughs) Awesome. 
Well, thanks, Veronica. It's been a pleasure, and I look forward to uh, having you on in the future to talk about other apocalyptic uh, things that may happen. <laughs> L- looking forward to it, Mitch. <laughs> thanks again to Veronica for her valuable insights. Thanks to Ben Montgomery for the soundtrack, and thanks to you for listening, subscribing, and rating the podcast. Hot takes and hot guests are always welcome at Telekinetic Show on Twitter or on telekineticshow.com. Peace.